Hello everyone and welcome to the September 14th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Pandemic-related delays on Ben Affleck's latest film, Hypnotic, have sparked a lawsuit against an insurance company that is refusing to extend the term of coverage without a COVID-19 exception, even though the original policy did not have one. Huzgao Productions is suing Chubb National Insurance Company for breach of contract and fraud and is asking a California federal judge for a declaration that Huzgao is entitled to have the policy's expiration date extended. The production company purchased a film producer's risk policy for Hypnotic and argues the insurer's long-standing established policy is that if a production is delayed or disrupted, the policy period is extended until the production is completed. The policy includes $58 million of production media coverage per occurrence, $58 million of media perils coverage, and $58 million of declared personal coverage. It also provides that Chubb will pay for actual production losses incurred because of the inability of an essential element or other declared person to complete their duties. The complaint alleges that the policy does not include a virus exclusion, pandemic exclusion, COVID-19 exclusion, or any other similar exclusion. The policy term is October 28, 2019 through October 28, 2020 and is soon to expire. But the end date is merely a formality and the parties understood that coverage would be extended if filming went beyond that date. But when Hypnotic was delayed because of the pandemic, whose gal says Chubb refused to extend the policy and instead offered to renew it with more limited coverage. The film production was set to begin last April, but like countless other Hollywood productions, it was postponed because of the pandemic. Huzgaut reached out to Chubb about an extension of the policy and claims it was ignored for two months before the company said the global Chubb position was to deny the extension request. Chubb National said that the policy would be renewed only with the addition of an exclusion applicable to losses related to COVID-19, thereby depriving Huzgao of coverage that it had purchased and that was promised under the existing policy. Huzgao alleges that Chubb is engaging in a coordinated scheme to wrongfully withhold policy benefits from its customers across the entertainment industry in an effort to save itself millions of dollars. A Chubb spokesperson said, that as a matter of policy, Chubb does not comment on pending legal matters. According to a new public policy report, AARP finances its operations by overcharging members for health care policies and through its billion-dollar relationship with United Health Group. The report was published by public policy think tank American Commitment and mainly examined AARP's source of revenue since the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2010. 
Despite its nonprofit status, the report claims AARP's profits have been increasing for years, largely due to the organization's practices of marketing of products and services. AARP reported $1.6 billion of revenue and $246.4 million of profit in 2018, the most recent year in which data was available. In total, AARP received more than $5.3 billion tax-free from United Health Group from 2007 to 2017, a 10-year period. Between the year of Obamacare's passage and 2017, the organization made nearly $4.2 billion in those eight short years. AARP not only makes money from United Health Group and its members directly, it does so indirectly as well. The report claims the organization has established a grantor trust through which it funnels payments for insurance policies issued by United Health and other insurers including MetLife, Genworth, and Aetna. In the past four years, AARP has been sued three times by its own members over its royalty fee policy, which they argued was deceptive according to the court filings. However, AARP ultimately won each of these cases. A U.S. District Court of Washington, D.C. ruled in favor of AARP in May, dismissing the plaintiff's class action lawsuit. Those plaintiffs, led by AARP member Helen Krukas, argued that the organization misrepresented its Medigap royalty fee structure. The plaintiffs specifically argued that AARP was micromanaging the sale of Medigap and therefore the 4.95% fee is not really a royalty fee for its intellectual property. Instead, it is a commission and is taxable. The federal judge originally rejected AARP's motion to dismiss the case in March 2019, giving credence to Krukas's argument. The judge wrote that Krukas sufficiently and plausibly alleged that the defendants engaged in unfair trade practices by materially misrepresenting information about the 4.95% fee charge. But in May, the judge ruled that Krukas's argument missed the mark, since Krukas failed to prove that AARP has a fiduciary relationship with its members. Similarly, U.S. District Judge Dean Pragerson of Los Angeles dismissed two separate AARP class action lawsuits. Pragerson ruled against plaintiff Simon LeVay in November 2018 and against Gerald Friedman in November 2019. The second dismissal came after the three-judge panel Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in favor of the plaintiffs. The panel ruled that AARP transacts and solicits insurance without a license and engaged in fraud by calling the 4.95% commission a royalty. Judge Pegerson did not agree, however, saying the plaintiffs failed to prove they suffered economic harm. The House Ways and Means Committee investigated AARP back in 2011. The investigation pointed out several potential issues with AARP's structure, including its royalty fee practices, and concluded with a series of suggestions for the Internal Revenue Service to consider. 
And now our crime report. 50-year-old Anita VJ of Sacramento pleaded guilty to conspiring to pay and receive illegal kickbacks in exchange for Medicare beneficiary referrals. She worked as a social services director at a skilled nursing and assisted living facility in Sacramento and assisted Medicare beneficiaries in selecting home, health care, and hospice agencies following their discharge from the facility. VJ used her position to steer Medicare beneficiaries to home health agencies in Folsom and El Dorado Hills and a hospice agency in Folsom. In exchange for the referrals, the agency's owners paid her and her husband, Jai VJ, illegal cash kickbacks. In her plea agreement, VJ admitted that the agency's owners paid her and her husband kickbacks in exchange for the referrals of about 60 beneficiaries. She is scheduled to be sentenced on December 3rd and faces maximum statutory penalties of five years in prison for the conspiracy charge and 10 years in prison for the kickback charge. Her husband, Jai VJ, pled guilty last February to the same charges. The Employment Development Department is actively investigating reports of suspicious mailings regarding unemployment benefits that people all over the state have received. And the EDD claims that the circumstances give rise to a strong suspicion of recent fraud. The agency noted that between January and June, 60% of notices requiring additional documents were responded to by legitimate claimants. But then in July, the response rate plunged to 15%, and in August, it plunged to 9%. That indicated to the EDD a strong suspicion of recent fraud, and that will go unpaid since the EDD will not receive the necessary documents on these claims to prove identity. The EDD says that fraud attempts have increased during the pandemic, and individuals are exploiting the very efforts of California to issue unemployment benefit payments as quickly as possible to workers impacted by COVID-19. The EDD's investigation team is working closely with local, state, and federal partners to expose, stop, and hold offenders accountable. One of the scams pointed out by the EDD involved debit cards. Non-claimants may receive debit cards that have to be activated by the individual named on the card with personal identifying information before benefits can be accessed. This is nothing more than the equivalent of an email phishing scam aimed at stealing the victim's personal information to be used in subsequent fraud attempts. EDD also warns that Californians should not provide the multiple mail items they may have received to people who may show up at their door claiming to be collecting materials for the EDD. EDD representatives will not come to your home. The EDD has information posted on its website encouraging people who do receive such mail or see other suspicious activity to report it to EDD right away. It also has information about how to return the multiple mail items to the EDD. The problems California residents have with possible fraud are not unique to this state. The FBI in July reported a spike 
in fraudulent unemployment insurance claims complaints related to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic involving the use of stolen personally identifiable information. It said people from several states have been victimized by criminal actors impersonating the victims and using the victims' stolen identities to submit fraudulent unemployment insurance claims online. And in regulatory news, Governor Gavin Newsom has promptly signed into law a bill that exempts more occupations from Assembly Bill 5, the controversial law that required most independent contractors to become employees of their clients this last January 1. Assembly Bill 5 included exemptions for many politically connected occupations, like real estate agents and doctors but ensnared many others, drawing particular criticism from musicians, independent truck drivers, franchise business owners, and freelance writers. These new amendments in AB 2257 are specific to writers, photographers, videographers, editors, and illustrators, and makes changes to AB 5 that further accommodate the needs for those individuals in the industry that operate as their own small businesses. It also establishes an exemption for services provided by a fine artist, freelance writer, translator, editor, content contributor, advisor, narrator, cartographer, producer, copy editor, illustrator, or newspaper cartoonist. Those workers need to work under a written contract that specifies certain terms subject to prescribed restrictions. The new law creates additional exemptions for various other professions and occupations. It exempts from the ABC test people who provide underwriting inspections and other services for the insurance industry, a manufactured housing salesperson, people engaged by an international exchange visitor program, consulting services, animal services, and competition judges with specialized skills. The law would also create exceptions for licensed landscape architects, special teaching master classes, registered professional foresters, real estate appraisers and home inspectors, and feedback aggregators. The law revises the criteria pursuant to which referral agencies and service providers providing services to clients through referral agencies are exempt. The law also created an exemption for business-to-business relationships between two or more sole proprietors as specified. And the new law makes conforming changes to tax law regarding the determination of the status of a worker as either an employee or independent contractor. This new law takes effect immediately as an urgency statute. Now, there is a political backstory to the new gig worker law walkback. A major complaint among Californians affected by the state's anti-freelancing law, AB 5, is that the labor unions wrote it and essentially paid for its passage. And some say that the purpose was to enrich unions by creating millions of new employees to organize. The bill's author, Assemblyperson Lorena Gonzalez-Fletcher, has admitted that the California Labor Federation sponsored the bill, 
but denies that the unions ensured its passage. Governor Newsom had 30 days to sign AB 2257, the new AB 5 walkback bill. So it's significant that he signed it only three days after passage. And the new law was deemed an urgency statute so that it takes effect immediately. And there is rumored bad blood between San Francisco Democrats and Los Angeles-San Diego Democrats. And Gonzalez Fletcher's already made Governor Gavin Newsom's life more difficult this year by failing to negotiate the cleanup provisions for AB5 and by publicly battling with Elon Musk, a longtime friend of Governor Newsom and major job creator in the state. Entering stage left is Willie Brown, who perhaps put his thumb on the scales of legislation once again. For those not familiar, Willie Brown is not only one of the most powerful politicians to have ever graced the floor of the California State Assembly, he's been the most powerful Democrat in the state since the 1960s. Now, at age 86, he still wields considerable power as a kingmaker in the state. After serving 32 years in the Assembly, Brown was mayor of San Francisco for eight years and was succeeded by his protege, Gavin Newsom. Kamala Harris's political career started when Brown appointed her to a state commission and then helped her become the elected district attorney of San Francisco. Brown wanted the new AB5 walkback bill, AB2257, signed immediately because as a weekly columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, he had hit his 35-story limit under AB5. And the newspaper prohibited him from publishing additional columns until AB2257 was signed. Brown fumed of the move by Hearst Newspaper's flagship publication. He said that for 12-plus years, every Sunday, he wrote that column in the paper and had never taken a vacation. And he said this is the most important year since it is a campaign year where there is really a contest. After the governor promptly signed the new law within three days of its passage, the governor sent a text message to Brown that said, I signed the bill. Write the damn column. Brown shared the text message with Politico when the story appeared on this new bill. Earlier in the day, some of Brown's powerful friends in politics, including attorney Joe Cotchett, contacted Newsom in an effort to get him to move quickly on the bill in order to get Brown's Sunday column back in the paper as soon as possible. Brown's concluding comments were in reference to the AB5 author, assembly person Lorena Gonzalez-Fletcher. Brown said, If there was a place to picket a legislator, I'd do it. The DWC and its Workers' Compensation Appeals Board continued to improve their ability to hold hearings during the COVID-19 pandemic. The DWC will continue to hear all mandatory settlement conferences, priority conferences, status conferences, case-in-chief trials, lien conferences, special adjudication unit trials, and expedited hearings telephonically. 
However, beginning September 14, DWC will resume holding lien trials. But lien trials will be limited to one per judge per day to start. Parties will continue to use individually assigned judges' conference lines on the day of trial. However, a judge will have the option of conducting any trial or expedited hearing through the judge's life-size virtual courtroom if needed. If that is required, the judge will provide a link to the parties, allowing them to log into the video platform. Stakeholders should download the software prior to a hearing where a video option may become necessary. Neither the DWC nor LifeSize will charge for participants to use the platform. However, parties will need to have certain system requirements to fully participate in the video option, such as a web camera. Participants without access to a web camera may use a smartphone with the program, although it is not recommended. Additional information on LifeSize and how to use the program may be found on the DWC website. All parties scheduled for a hearing should continue to call the conference line for the judge in front of whom the case is set at the designated time listed on the hearing notice. District offices will not hold in-personal hearings. DWC will not accept walk-in filings, walk-through documents, or in-person requests at this time. DWC will only accept electronic filing by way of EAMS and JetFile and paper filing by U.S. Mail. DWC will accept limited email filings pursuant to the WCAB's en banc decision dated April 6 and its newsline issued on April 23rd. Email filings are limited to documents that are subject to a statute of limitations that cannot otherwise be e-filed, jet-filed, or filed by U.S. mail. DWC will continue to accept an electronic signature on any settlement documents, applications, pleadings, petitions, or motions that are sent to the district offices or filed in EAMS. For all e-forms, parties should utilize S signature as shown in the e-forms filing reference guide and the jet file business rules. The WCAB office in San Francisco is operating with limited in-office staff. The commissioners and staff continue to work remotely. And in medical news, a new study from the Workers' Compensation Research Institute finds that for workers with low back pain only injuries, early initiation of physical therapy is associated with lower utilization and costs. The WCRB president and CEO said, this is a comprehensive study that shows a strong association between physical therapy timing and outcomes for workers with low back pain. He added that while the study cannot conclude that early physical therapy causes better outcomes, it does suggest that the potential benefits of early PT should be considered when planning care for these injuries. The study is entitled, The Timing of Physical Therapy for Low Back Pain Doesn't Matter in Workers' Compensation, and it focuses on claims with low back pain only injuries. And it was based on nearly 26. 6,000 low back pain only claims with more than seven days of lost time from 27 different states, including California.
The study, after controlling for a rich set of factors that might influence both PT timing and outcomes, concluded that later timing of PT initiation is associated with longer temporary disability duration. On average, the number of TD weeks per claim was 58% longer for those with PT initiated more than 30 days post-injury and 24% longer for those with PT starting 15 to 20 days post-injury compared with claims with PT within three days post-injury. And workers whose physical therapy treatment started more than 30 days post-injury were 46 and 47% more likely to receive opioid prescriptions and an MRI respectively compared with those who had physical therapy treatment initiated within three days of injury. The differences between PT after 30 days post-injury and PT within three days post-injury were 29% for pain management injections and 89% for low back surgeries. The average payment for all medical services received during the first year of treatment was lower for workers with early physical therapy compared with those with late PT. For example, the average medical cost per claim for workers who had PT more than 30 days post-injury was 24% higher than for those who had physical therapy within three days post-injury. Among claims with PT treatment starting more than 30 days post-injury, the percentage with attorney involvement was considerably higher, 27% compared with 13% among those in the early PT groups. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.